Hi everyone, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Caleb and I'm here as always with Andrew. I wanted to give you all a disclaimer on this episode because this episode is going to be quite different than anything we've covered in the past. Andrew and I, throughout covering the past several hundred years of Iroquoian history in North America, we've talked about a lot of bad things, a lot of murder, a lot of torture, things that can make people uncomfortable. Now, that being said, what we are going to talk about today is something that when Andrew and I researched it, we did not even want to talk about it. So Andrew and I were uh, kicking around the idea back and forth, hey, do we even want to do an episode on this? Because it just made us so uncomfortable and so ashamed of basically the human race. But we agreed that we would cover it. That would do honor to the victims of the story more than pretending that it didn't exist. This episode is not going to be like many of our other episodes, so please just keep that in mind. History is not always entertaining. So I guess I'll leave it at that for now. And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 10. Caleb, a long while back we talked about Hendrik Thanayaguin. He was a Mohawk leader who was killed in the French and Indian War at the Battle of Lake George. Do you recall him, Caleb? Yes. Anyway, before Hendrik was killed in the French and Indian War, in 1743, he met with a young man who was from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, a guy named David Zeisberger. He was an immigrant from Moravia. Ever heard of it? Yeah, that's uh, modern-day Czech Republic. Yeah, he was from the German-speaking area. From a young age, David desired to be a missionary and wanted to work among Native American peoples. So when Hendrik met him, he actually invited him to come back to his Mohawk country for a visit. And David was really enraptured with learning native languages. And so he and another friend of his named Frederick Post set out for Mohawk country a short time after that. However, once they got to New York, they started to draw a lot of notice. People were very suspicious of them. And some people thought that they might be spies pretending to be uh, Jesuits, or I don't know what they are, but these people are up to no good. They're foreigners. So they ended up spending seven weeks in a prison in Albany before finally being freed and told in no uncertain terms to not come back. When David was set free from prison, the, the first thing he wanted to do was head back to the Iroquois capital of Onondaga, to the Council of the Fifty Sachems. And when he got there... They welcomed him very warmly. Hendrik probably had a lot to do with that. David, he impressed them with his desire to learn their culture, how quickly he'd pick up their languages and practices. He also had a, a knack for not just the Onondaga language, but all the different dialects. He Later in his life, he ended up being able to speak almost fluent Cayuga, Mahican, Ojibwa, 
and Delaware, the Lenape. And at the end of his visit, he was overjoyed when the council granted him permission to begin a mission in the Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania. Yeah, the Onondaga Nation was so impressed with him and his desire for him to actually learn their custom and ways that they actually formally adopted him in a ceremony and gave him the name Gananasora Kerry, which means, well, there's two different meanings. Uh, one you may read about says that it was on the pumpkin, but you read about a slightly various translation, Caleb. Uh, yeah, Andrew, I heard a, a much more poetic translation of the name, and it was something along the lines of mist over the pumpkin patch. After staying there a while in Onondaga, he traveled down the Chemung River to head back to Pennsylvania. On the way, he looked over on the distant shore and he saw some turkeys. And as one would do when you're looking for a little meat, you have a gun with you. He got out his rifle and was getting ready to fire at the turkeys. But then, as he was going through the tall grass, a rattlesnake sprung out and bit him on the leg. Now that's a recipe for uh, death back then. A lot of the times, the rattlesnake is one of the most venomous North American vipers. But fortunately, he was dressed in the Onondaga fashion, Andrew, and he was wearing deerskin leggings. So he literally had deer hide wrapped around his leg, and the leather was so thick that the rattlesnake bite did not break his skin. Zeisberger took a brief trip back to Europe, and he was appointed by the famous Count Zinzendorf. If you want to read about him, he was a really interesting guy. Zinzendorf appointed Zeisberg to a lifetime position as a missionary to the Iroquois. And so when Zeisberger returned to North America, he came to Onondaga to live in 1752. Soon thereafter, they saw that he was becoming so fluent in the language that they even brought out the sacred wampum belts that told their whole history and started teaching him all the meanings and symbology behind them. Later that fall, he went to visit the Cayuga Nation and was greeted warmly when he first arrived in the village. But what happened that night? Well, a Dutch liquor trader entered into David's cabin while he was sleeping and proceeded to try and kill him by bashing his head in with a club. Most likely, Andrew, this Dutch trader wasn't happy because David was doing his best to teach the Iroquois and the other Indian nations on the deadly nature of alcohol and the effect that it's having on their society. So many of them were doing their best to just avoid rum and liquor altogether. And this was cutting into the trader's bottom line. While he was being attacked, uh, an elderly woman ran to get help. The village elders came in and saved Zeisberger. Later in the spring, he went back to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. But the following year, he was again traveling to Onondaga. And on the way, a group of Lenape, Delaware, and Oneida began to pursue and then attack him, demanding rum, probably thinking he was some kind of a traitor. He stopped them and pretty much pulled out the card, don't you guys know who I am? And this is what he said, quote, Brothers, you seem not to know me. I am Ganana Soacheri. With that, they profusely apologized and begged his forgiveness. Over the next few years, he made trips back and forth to the Seneca and Onondaga homeland in upstate New York. He did a lot of diplomatic work as an interpreter at conferences. And in 1752, he actually moved to Onondaga to live with his adopted people. While there, he started compiling an Onondaga language dictionary. And by the time he was completed with it, it had almost 2,000 pages. Which, I don't know how big our dictionaries are today, but that sounds like a massive volume. 
He lived there for three years, but then the French and Indian War started up, and he was encouraged to leave. He was really, really trying to get the Iroquois to stay neutral. You see, Zeisberger was a Moravian, and like the Quakers, they strictly believed in pacifism, in nonviolent resolution to problems. After the war, Guy Suta and Pontiac's rebellion flared up. If you're interested in that or just joining us, a few episodes back we covered that. Then came the Conestoga Massacre in 1764, and the surviving Indians were taken to Philadelphia for protection, and Zeisberger went with them to ensure that they were taken care of. Over the next few years, his mission became more and more focused on the Delaware people. They were a nation uh, dispossessed due to uh, shady treaty dealings and also uh, Iroquois uh, selling their land in order to gain influence with uh, the English and so forth. So they really didn't have a, a real place that they could call their own. Uh, the biggest travesty was in what was called the Walking Purchase in 1730. Yeah, we covered that fully in one of our episodes, and it was supposed to be where the British would walk a certain amount of land, but they had hired runners and cleared paths for them to just grab huge chunks of eastern Pennsylvania and steal it away. And now more land that they had uh, been living in, the Iroquois had sold rights to it to the English, so now the Delaware were being forced out once again. And you may think to yourself, well, how could that happen if it's Delaware land? But remember, at the time, the Delaware are a prop in the Iroquois Confederacy. So they're part of the Confederacy. They're like a vassal state. So therefore, legally speaking, the Iroquois were doing nothing wrong. And in fact, the Iroquois were doing it to try and save their own land by deflecting settlers west towards Ohio and Pennsylvania. So David Zeisberger took his homeless converts and they moved to the Ohio country in 1772. And they worked there for about 10 years, and he and others ministered to the Native American Christians and worked tirelessly to convert as many as they could to Christianity. They set up some communities in the villages along the Tuscaroras River, one named Schoenbrunn, which had a population of about 240, and a short time later, some Christian Mohicans also immigrated to the area, led by a leader named Joseph. And they founded, on the same river, to the south, a village called the Cabins of Grace, or in the German language, Gnaudenhuden. In 1776, Zeisberger and Heckewelder, they were some of the two most prominent missionaries, they were talking to the Delaware chiefs and they asked them to make a third village, which they called Lichnau. The thing was, as all these Lenape Delaware people became Christians, they were of the Moravian branch. And as we mentioned, part of their teaching was to swear off war. They believed that the turn the other cheek mentality of Christianity, that pacifism is what Christians should strive for. And that sounds really good because for the last seven years, we've had this American revolution going on. And so all these other refugee native peoples are coming around these villages seeking camaraderie, and the population of these towns continues to expand. Naudenhuden was at least a 60-cabin town. Andrew, I need to point out that the Delaware were converting in genuine. Uh, a lot of times uh, people may make the argument, uh, especially with Christian missionaries at the time, is a lot of people converted probably just so they could get better trade goods. Or, you know, we think of the Crusades where uh, 
Millions of people were converted at the edge of a knife. I'd like to make the argument that these Moravian, Lenape, and Iroquois, and Mohicans, and Mohicans were genuine in their conversion uh, because they were not really getting anything out of it. They weren't being paid in supplies. They weren't getting any special benefits. In fact, in a lot of ways, they were losing a lot in doing this because they began to be looked down upon by other native nations because they looked at them as if they were not men anymore because they didn't go out on the warpath and, and such like that. The things that really brought you esteem amongst your village, all of a sudden these people are completely shunning off that. It was written in some of the journals that when they sang and worshipped their songs in their church meetings, it was said that they would begin to shake with excitement as they sang and cried out to God. And things were going really well. Uh, the missionaries were educating them. And the other thing was the missionaries were raising up local indigenous people to be the leaders of this congregation so that they were not needed, so that it could be a fully independent and self-replicating church, which at the time was an extremely novel idea, thinking that uh, these ignorant savages could actually lead themselves in Christian worship. But of course, whenever you're upsetting cultural norms, not everybody's happy about it. Many native people, from their perspective, see these white devils coming in, and these new teachings are making them weak and docile and turning them into pansies. And from another flip of a coin, it's making them look like they're more of an easy target. Maybe shady white traders or things like that that want to come in and try to swindle people. All the, it's, a, it's a lot easier to go in and uh, try and swindle somebody out of a little extra money when you know they're pacifists than knowing that they could take a tomahawk to you. One day Zeisberger was walking with a Lenape friend and another man came up to him and raised a hatchet to the missionary and said, you are about to see your grandfathers. Uh, David's friend who was with him grabbed the tomahawk, wrestled it away from the man's hand, and saved David's life. And Zeisberger's just standing there. I'm, I'm sure that he was a bit scared, but the guy doesn't miss a beat. And he begins talking to the guy and telling him what Christ has done for him and that God loves him and forgives his sins and forgives his anger and he doesn't hold it against him. And the man just broke down and started crying. And he ended up becoming a Christian, and Zeisberger writes in his journals that this guy was a huge help to our ministry. So stuff like this was happening. So Zeisberger was a different kind of man altogether. With the start of the war in the 1770s, though, Andrew, peace was not able to last in this thriving community. The majority of the Delawares wanted to remain neutral but think about where they are on a map, Andrew. They're just surrounded. They're literally like right on the border, stuck between the people that are siding with the English and the people that are siding with the new Patriot cause. Yeah, to the north you have Fort Detroit, and to the south you have Fort Pitt. And so they're literally caught right in this balance. So officially they do stay neutral throughout the entire American Revolution, but Zeisberger and the Delawares were still feeding Americans information, even though they were being neutral. And not just information, but food as well. Uh, I was able to find this little gem. This is a letter from John Gibson. Remember that name. He was in charge at Fort Pitt. And this is a letter he wrote to Thomas Jefferson in May of 1781. The Moravians have always given the most convincing proof of their attachment to the cause of America. 
by always giving us intelligence of every part that came against the frontiers. And on the late expedition, they furnished Colonel Broadhead and his party with a large quantity of provision when they were starving. In the fall of 1781, David Zeisberger and his companions were forced by the British and the Wyandotte leader Half King to relocate to Sandusky because the British were suspecting them of, like we just said, passing along information and food to the Americans. So they figured they would move them further away so that they could be surrounded by British allies all around them. And a couple little footnotes right here. In a previous episode, I had mistakenly mentioned that Sandusky was in Indiana, and one of our listeners wrote that it's actually in Ohio. And you are correct. There is a Sandusky, Indiana, but the both events that we were talking about then and now, we are referring to Sandusky, Ohio. So thank you for correcting us on that. Also, another footnote, when you hear us say the Wyandotte leader half-king, this has nothing to do with Gayasuta or Tanagrasin, other half-kings that we mentioned that were Iroquois in the past. This was a uh, Huron person. The Wyandotte are the descendants of Huron refugees that fled from Canada. Half-king told the Delaware that they had to move for their own protection, which there was some truth in that. Uh, The main reason for getting the missionaries, though, was to keep them away from the Americans. They did promise them that they would look after them, though, and uh, implied that the British would help them with food and make sure that they were kept safe and warm throughout the cold winter. But in March of 1782, a lot of them were in very bad shape. They had not been given the food that they had been promised or uh, implied that they would get. So a lot of them, Andrew, were actually borderline starving at this point. They were basically taking it on the chin. Some of their leaders went and they spoke with Half King and they said, here's the situation we're in. Our people are starving. It's been a hard winter. And we planted a lot of crops in our towns where we were last year before we were located. I bet that all of the corn and crops are still on the stock. For those of you that uh, don't have any farming experience, corn will stay on the stock for a long time. Many farmers to this day will leave corn on the stock over winter and then harvest it in the spring when it's more convenient or uh, early in the winter. So they asked for permission to go back to their old towns and harvest the corn that would be left over. And because they were starving and Half King was one of the people that got them into the situation, he pitied them. And they were given permission to go back and gather food from their old villages. Once they got there, they were able to gather quite a bit. And they quickly began to process it because, remember, the corn that they grew, they usually ground into flour to make for uh, cooking. But meanwhile, things are happening around them that are totally beyond their control. There are other Wyandotte and Ojibwa and even other Delaware not related to them that are going around and raiding American settlements in western Pennsylvania and the Ohio country and into Kentucky. And a lot of these people back at Fort Pitt and in the area around have had family members either killed or carried off. And so they send out a party to explore the area to see if they can track down these people that are attacking their settlements. 160 American militia led by David Williamson set out from Mingo Bottom on a patrol to see if they can deal with these raiding Indians. And they think, well, let's check out these abandoned Moravian towns to see if any of these people are using these places as hideouts. 
word kind of gets out of what the intentions are of this militia group. And back at Fort Pitt, there's an ally for the Delaware, a guy named John Gibson. He's very sympathetic to their cause, and just by luck, he's actually in charge at this point because the real commander is off visiting his family and the other one was previously arrested for bribery. So he finds himself in a situation where he's in charge. And so he sends orders for somebody to go to Naudenhuden and warn the Delaware there and just wanted to give you guys the heads up, not sure what they're up to, but they might be heading in your direction. Unfortunately, tragically, the runner with the message is not going to arrive in time. You may be asking yourself, wow, that's really strange. Why would this guy Gibson care a lick about these Delaware people? Why is he so passionate about protecting them? He's come up before in our episodes, and he has a really cool backstory. So we thought we'd just mention it really quick here, and then it'll kind of make everything crystallize for you. Gibson was a teenager during the French and Indian War. I think he was about 17 when he traveled with George Washington and Forbes when they finally captured Fort Duquesne at the Forks of the Ohio. And then during Pontiac's War, he was captured by the Lenape Delaware and was sentenced to be burned to death. But an elderly Lenape woman intervened and asked to adopt him. And he lived with them for some time. And they gave him the interesting name, not one that I would have chosen for myself, Caleb, but they called him Horsehead. Probably they said that it was because he had an extended long face. Even in later life, white people would call him by the nickname Horsehead. Anyway, after some time, he moved out and became a trader and got married. Now, the interesting thing is here, do you remember who he married, Caleb? He was married to Logan the Orator's sister. Her name was Kune. Yeah, and she was the daughter of the famed leader Shekelemi and Neonama. And if you're interested in Logan the Orator, uh, hate to keep throwing this in there, but there is an episode on him. If uh, you want a little more backstory on who the players are in this story. The thing that happened to Logan's family was at the Yellow Creek Massacre, Kune, along with several of her other relatives and their unborn child, were all murdered ruthlessly. And the only person the murderers spared was a young infant girl who was John Gibson's daughter. Eventually, she was turned over to Gibson, and he was had to raise her as a single father. So fast forward eight years later, you can see why he's really protective of Native peoples. He was an adopted Delaware. He was part of an Iroquois Mingo marriage. And now he finds himself in charge of Fort Pitt after Daniel Broadhead has been arrested on corruption charges. But let's get back to what Williamson's men are up to. Williamson, the commander of the militia, they were only about a mile from the village of Gnadenhuden, and they found a young boy there named Joseph, and he was uh, half Indian, half white. Probably only about 14 years old. And he was the son of one of the prominent missionaries, John Bull, and his Indian wife, Christina. He gave a peaceful greeting to the Americans, and he ran right up to them, at which point the Americans pulled out their tomahawks and landed blows all over his body. He tried to scream and tell them that he was the son of a white father and a missionary from his village. And he begged for them to spare him, but the tomahawks continued to land. And there was another boy with him. And as soon as this started to happen, the boy ran. And the muskets opened fire at him, and he 
dove into his canoe and paddled as fast as he could to get away as bullets were landing all around him. But the second boy was able to escape and he ran into the woods and hid. But he would not be able to get back to the town and warn them of the militia. The Americans then continued on to the village. The Delaware citizens were totally unaware as to what transpired. They were mainly still working out in the fields. Some of them stood up. They saw that the Americans were arriving and they came out just like Joseph had done and greeted them. Williamson told this wonderful, beautiful story that they had come to rescue them, to bring them back to Pittsburgh, to keep them there so that they would be safe from the horrors of war. They would be given food and housing. Now, this would sound like an absolute miracle. I mean, we've kind of been supporting the Americans all along and they hear what the horrible situation we've been in and Fort Pitt is actually a really nice place now and we know that Gibson's there and he's a friend to us. So, yeah, that's wonderful. They start mingling with the soldiers and blessing them and thanking them. The militia soldiers told all of the Lenape that they would be happy to help them pack. They even told them, don't even worry about carrying your guns or any of your hunting equipment or your fishing spears, we'll carry all of it for you and make sure it's kept safe during the travels. In fact, why don't you guys, do you have other friends in other villages gathering food too? Oh yes, yes. And they persuaded them to send messengers to come urge them to come down to Gnaudenhuden to join up as they all go to Fort Pitt. When many of the outlying villages met up, the American militia sprung on them and tied and bound them, trapping everyone in the center of the village. Then Williamson and the other soldiers began to argue on what would be best to do with them. Many of them accused the Delaware of attacking American settlements and supporting the British, making arguments, they moved away so they could be closer to the British, so they're obviously no friends of ours. Many of them brought up how they had children and friends murdered by the roaming Indian bands that had broken in and burned their homes. They said that the axes that these Lenape had here while they were gathering food had the names of white settlers carved into them. And the horses that they had were branded, and the only white people do that. Therefore, these are obviously murderous, raiding bands coming in to attack us. Even though the Lenape said that we had purchased these things, we had traded these things, of course they're going to have different people's names on them. Williamson's men weren't having any of it. Out of the 160 militiaman army, almost nobody would speak up for the Lenape. Uh, 18 men out of the group said that the Moravians had done nothing wrong. And if anything, if we're not going to let them go, let's just take them prisoner back to Pittsburgh and, you know, release them there, give them to our next commanding officer. But they were shouted down overwhelmingly, Andrew, nine to one margin, and they convicted the Moravian Delaware to death. An elderly Mohican woman named Christina came up to the feet of Williamson and begged for mercy. Nobody... I can just picture them saying, is this a joke? Everybody knows that we're pacifists, Christians. We've done everything we can to help the Americans. Uh, you, You can't be serious. We're obviously blameless in this. Show mercy. Williamson's response was short and cold. He said, I cannot help you. But 
since you are Christians, you can have one night to get right before God. As soon as this was said, the few men that saw what was going on turned their back and walked out. They said, we're not going to have anything to do with this. You're all murderers and you can be judged before God. We will not bloody our hands with this. And they grabbed their packs and they left. Williamson's men separated the men and women and they put each group in a cabin. Try to picture yourself in this situation. Right now, right now, Caleb, as we're speaking, I feel my skin tingling on my arms because of the anger I feel towards this and the grief and the sorrow, all these emotions mixed into one. How would they be feeling right now? How can you think? What would you think? Your whole family is with you, your wife, your children, your neighbors, everyone you knew. What would you do if you had one night to live? So as the night set in, the soldiers started to hear noises coming from inside the buildings. And they were different sounds. There were cries and sobs. But then they heard music. In fact, music that they knew. They were singing hymns, Andrew, in their own languages, but set to the hymns melody. All through the night they sang, and they cried out to Christ to save their souls They confessed their sins to one another. They asked for forgiveness from one another for any wrongs they had done. At dawn, Andrew, the militia was becoming impatient. They mockingly asked the captives if they were ready to die. They said that they were ready. Williamson said it would be impractical for our gunpowder to be wasted on the people. Let's kill them in a more economic way. Some people wanted to burn them alive while they were all inside the cabins. But other men, men who didn't value human life at all, said, well, we can scalp them and they could be excellent war prizes or we could even resell them. So in the end, they decided that blunt objects would do the best job. They took an elderly Mohican man out of the cabin. His name was Abraham and they had him sit down. He began to comment to his captors that he had long flowing hair and it would make a fine scalp for these Americans. And then he gave his last words as a statement to encourage the people of his town. Dear brethren, according to appearances, we shall all very soon come to the Savior. You know I am a bad man and that I have been much trouble to the Savior and to the brethren. And I've not behaved as becomes a believer. Yet to him I belong, bad as I am. He will forgive us all and not reject me. To the end I shall hold fast to him and not leave him. The house that the men were in had been a cooper's house. That's a barrel maker. And on the floor lay one of his giant wooden mallets. An American named Nathan Rollins had previously had his uncle and father killed by some kind of Indian band. Not by these people, of course, but he didn't care. And he said that he wanted the first kill for his revenge, for his right to revenge. He picked up the mallet and said, this'll do. Abraham was outside kneeling and singing. Rollins raised the mallet high, and with a downward thrust, he slammed it into the back of Abraham's skull. 
He then went back into a cabin, had the men and boys line up facing the wall with their hands tied, and in a row, he found 13 more heads to bash. Then he stopped out of breath. He passed the weapon to the next man and said, My arm fails me. Go on in the same way. I think I've done pretty well. Rollins later personally killed five more people with a tomahawk. When he was done, covered in blood, he ran outside down to the river and he sat down and cried, saying he got no satisfaction for the loss of his family after all. As all of this is happening, the people in the cabins continue to sing until their songs go from a chorus to a duet and a solo, and then they were all gone. And I wish, Caleb, I just wish that we could stop the story right here. But things that are going on in the other cabin are far worse. How could they be worse, you say? Well, it sickens me to say, but they were worse. In the other home, an elderly and pious woman named Judith was the first to be killed. And then the other women and the girls were dragged out of the building and horribly raped before they were killed. Some tried to run away, but were shot down in the woods. And after each person was killed, their heads were pulled back and scalped. Some of them were still alive, gasping for their final breath. In all, the militia killed 94 people in cold blood, 62 adults, and 32 children. There were, however, two survivors, two teenage boys. One of the survivors was named Thomas, and he was clubbed in the back of the head with the mallet and scalped, but he didn't die. Everyone thought he was dead, but later he recovered his senses, and he woke up covered in the bodies of everyone he knew in a big pile. As he was stirring, he saw a man also in the pile that was moving and trying to get up. But the militia noticed him, and they came over and finished him off. Thomas then continued to play dead until it was safe. The other boy was able to pry up some floorboards inside the captive women's house. He, along with one other teen, were just able to lie down under the wood and be hidden. As the people above them were being killed, they laid still, and they didn't make any noise under the floorboards. And... uh, Blood began to pour through the cracks of the house and land on them as they were laying flat. The blood of their friends and relatives, their mothers, their aunts, their sisters. But then the cabin was set on fire as they were underneath. They came up from the floorboards and looked for a window to jump out, but all the doors and windows were locked. The first boy was able to make a hole by bashing logs into the house and he was able to just squeeze out. But the second boy got stuck, and he screamed in terror as he was burned alive as the structure came crushing down to the ground. The surviving boy that made it through the window hole met Thomas, and the two of them traveled to another village, and they told the horrors that were done by the militia. Both these boys and Jacob, the boy that escaped in the canoe, all knew English, and so they were able to give a complete an accurate account of everything that happened and what everybody said. 
And when they told the other members of the area what had gone down, the message was clear to the indigenous peoples in the Ohio region. These militia, they don't care who you are. If you're an Indian, that's crime enough to be executed. To make things even more depressing, some of these people were Conestoga Iroquois, who a generation before had survived the massacre of the Paxton Boys in Pennsylvania. John Heckewelder, a Moravian missionary, wrote this about the militia and what they had done. Here they were now murdered together with the children, the loving children who so harmoniously raised their voices in the chapel, at their singing schools, and in their parents' houses, in singing praises to the Lord, whose tender years, innocent countenances, and tears made no impression on these pretended white Christians. We're able to find a little bit of godly compassion in here, Caleb. If only a tiny drop. One of the soldiers who wanted no part in the genocide was able to get an eight-year-old boy named Benjamin smuggled out of the camp. He took the child home and adopted him. And when the boy was grown, his father blessed him, and Benjamin returned to his people. So the man said, I can't save them all, but who I can save I will. Williamson's men continued to attack Delaware settlements around Fort Pitt. Some of them had gotten wind when they found bodies in the paths, killed and mutilated, and so they took to Fort Pitt for safety and sanctuary. Colonel Gibson, who was there, hastily brought them in and gave them protection. But then Williamson shows up, and he's standing outside the gates. He's shouting at the sentry, demanding entry. Gibson comes out over to the wall, and he refuses to let Williamson in. Williamson then demanded that Gibson turn over the savages, and Gibson told them, go pound sand. Williamson flew into a rage and said that he would scalp Gibson himself for being an Indian lover if he did not open the gates. And Gibson left the doors locked, and it's not a quote, Caleb, but I think the message was clear. He said, screw you. Now, what's going to happen after this is every single Native person in the Delaware region is going to hear what's been done to these Christian Moravian Delaware. And honestly, what what did pacifism get them? From their perspective, what did that get them? They're all dead now. And so is there anything else that we can possibly do? We have to ally with the British now. We have to fight for ourselves now. And this is going to escalate things even more. And a lot of people that have nothing to do with this on both sides are going to pay the price because of it. But I think it would be a disservice to talk about more war and more death. Because this episode is about the Moravian Christians. And they died worshiping God. And while they were being killed, they said to their captors, We forgive you. We are going to be with our Savior. We forgive you.